Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. If you're coming to the podcast for the first time, welcome. It's an honour to be in your ears. And I'd love to tell you all about my debut novel, Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls. It's the story of Violet and what happens when she rebounds from a breakup by throwing herself willingly into a wild, sexually experimental world with both of her new bosses-to-be. It's a romantic comedy with jokes, hopes and orgies. There's a special signed edition available for your book listeners to pre-order from Waterstones and pre-ordering it is the very best way for you to support the podcast. I know lots of you have pre-ordered it already and thank you with all my heart. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Also, if anyone is looking for the perfect last minute Christmas gift, I have a suggestion for you. Painfully British Haikus by Dale Shaw. Yes, that's our very own producer, Dale. Painfully funny, perfectly observed poems about the frailties and indignities that make us great. Well, that make us anyway. If you have any awkward Christmas zooms in the diary, keep the haikus handy and read them out during the difficult bits. Now... I have loved today's guest for as long as I have been able to read. Writer, actor, and I don't say this lightly, comic genius, Dawn French. Dawn tells us all about her fabulous Frank and funny new novel, Because of You, and her upcoming appearance on our screens as Beatrix Potter on Sky One on Christmas Eve in Roldan Beatrix, The Tale of the Curious Mouse. We talked about literary families, perfect poems, and the comedy writer's secret weapon, Ladybird Books. I wanted to start with um, with Beatrix Potter, and I know you're you're playing her at Christmas. Um, I'd love to know what your relationship is with those Beatrix Potter stories. Did you read them when you were little, or have you shared them with your own children at all? Well, that's interesting, really, because I definitely did have uh, Beatrix Potter books. I can't remember who gave them to me or how they were in my room, but I definitely had a few. Um, I think I had the tale of Mrs. Tiggywinkle and I think I had Peter Rabbit. Um, but then I kind of forgot all about Beatrix, but I, I like the look of them. I, I remember reading them and finding them quite alarming, um, but liked them at the same time. And I think that's the great thing about her is, you know, you, it looks cosy and it looks um, uh, cute and it's not anything but that. Uh, but weirdly, when I came to play this part for this film that's coming on this Christmas, um, I was looking in my own bookshelf that's in my office at the moment. And there was a little Beatrix Potter. And it was, um, uh, what was it? The Tale of Mrs. Tiggywinkle. 
And I brought it and I thought, surely this can't be my childhood book. I can't have brought this with me through my whole life. And therein it is, it's on my 18th birthday. It is from my very best friend then, a chap called Nigel, who has become my gay husband, you know, who I've known since I was nine years old. And uh, he knew how much I loved Beatrix Potter and gave me that book for my 18th birthday. So I thought, oh, yeah, okay, Beatrix Potter has been in my life in many different ways. It was a sort of camp present, really, but in, you know, in in remembrance of, of happier childhood stories. So, yeah, so there is a connection. Oh, what an amazing gift and what a thoughtful thing and how interesting that it, because yeah. even I think books we love, I think it's really hard to hold on to things, isn't it? Sort of as adults and, you know, you move and life changes and that obviously stayed with you the whole time. I'm yeah. not sure for Shane, because I remember loving Mrs. Tiggy Winkle, but I, can't, I couldn't tell you anything other than she's a hedgehog. Is she a hedgehog? Well, you know, I, I don't, she is a hedgehog. Yes, she is. And uh, one of the reasons I, I uh, know this now is that in this beautiful film that we've made for Sky, which is uh, based on the story of the day, the real day that the real rolled, six-year-old Roald Dahl met the 60-ish-year-old Beatrix, um, which I didn't even know there was such a day, but there were there were a few minutes where they met, um, and Roald uh, uh, wrote about this in his in diaries or some reference, um, and so my friend Abby Wilson wrote this film. But you know, until it came to then, I haven't thought about Mrs. Tiggywinkle at all. But the genius costume designer on this film, who's called Jane Spicer, decided that every character in the film would be reference to a character in either Beatrix Potter or in Roald Dahl's writing. So it's very subtle, but she gave me a kind of beautiful plum-coloured jumper. And it is the same colour as Mrs Tiggywinkle's shawl. And if you look carefully at this film, Bill Bailey is in it, and he plays a... I think he's called a, a gentrified dandy or something like this. Anyway, there's a chap... That, that the very young Rold meets on a, on a railway station. And without a doubt, all the references there are to the BFG. So, you know, that, and you can see, can't you, in Rold's writing, you can see Beatrix's influence without a doubt. All that, because the story is so vivid and the darkness. And I guess I think Rold does maybe a little more dark, but I forget, but you're so right. There's a real violence and drama in Beatrix Potter and you think she's so cosy, but in a way that I think absolutely appeals to, you know, clever children. Yeah. Well, Beatrix didn't have children of her own and she was not interested in protecting children from real um, kind of rural truths, if you like. You know, rats definitely get their tails um, chopped off. Um, Kittens are eaten by rats. You know, and if Mr. McGregor had caught Peter, he'd be in a pie, no doubt about it. You know, there there is some violence in it. And I don't think she wanted to protect children from that. And I don't think Roald wanted to either. And in fact, I think Roald Dahl has even spoken in the past about how children have to face some fears. And perhaps through children's literature, that's the best possible way that they can. It's it's madness to protect kids from that. And I loved, I, I loved anything that was a bit dangerous and difficult when I was younger. Do you have a favourite Roald Dahl book? 
Um, well, I think probably the BFG is the one because I always thought the the BFG was a nice big West Country accent. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's how I read it. And so, uh, yeah, that, that felt like it related to me and my and my family. Can you remember the first book that you really chose for yourself or the book that you read alone and thought, this is absolutely for me. This isn't from a parent or a teacher. This is mine. Well, I do remember. I mean, I remember being um, given books to read at school and stuff like that and opening my eyes to that. I remember being read to brilliant books, you know, The Hobbit and all of that. But the book that I returned to as a kid was The Family from One End Street. Oh, I love that book. Do you know those books? And then there was a series of them. Eve Garnett wrote them. And they were just hilarious. And they were very much about a kind of family you'd want to be part of. You know, lots of kids, lots going on. I mean, it was all kind of um, trivial family life stuff and a few adventures. They were a bit like the Larkins, really. But they were a jolly, happy family. And I remember reading those books and enjoying sitting in my bed and reading them on my own. Something I think about all the time is it's in one of the, the sequels, I guess, um, when they're in, the, the Jew drop in. And I can't remember the girl's name, but she's allowed to make custard with real eggs. And she's never yes. allowed to do that at home because of the waste. And, you know, there's not much money and there are lots of kids. And that she's the sort of yeah. miracle of being able to experiment in the kitchen. Her joy of cracking eggs. Yeah, yeah, how fantastic. I mean, you're right inside a um, a happy, sort of functioning and flawed family. And I think that's what I related to in it. Something I really, really adored about Because of You, and I loved that book, and thank you for writing it. And I thank think, you. like, millions of people, you know, little cliche, I laughed, I cried, but I did. It's so interesting about mothers, but also about daughters. And I was wondering if there are any other novels or books where that dynamic has appealed to you and I, I think it's always really interesting because I think we motherhood is something that we're good at exploring in book that you know many writers explore quite readily and quite well daughterhood I'm also fascinated by and it was really interesting to see that because I think that maybe comes up less often yeah I mean the the book that immediately comes to mind when you talk about mothers and daughters is postcards from the edge um you know that was quite a book and uh, Carrie Fisher, that's it, who I met several times. She was a good friend of Ruby Wax's and she is very funny. She came to my home, actually, and she named her daughter Billy and my daughter's called Billy. And we had a bit of back and forth about that. And of course, her mother was Debbie Reynolds. And that was a very open and honest book about a troubled relationship with her mother. Um, yeah, really. on and, and, a, and a look inside kind of Hollywood lifestyle, I guess, the likes of which, you know, I wouldn't begin to know or understand uh, the kind of parties her mother had and whatever. But this was something, when I think about it now, it was it was a book where a daughter has to take charge of a mother because the mother is reckless and drunk a lot of the time. And here's a daughter who also becomes reckless and drunk and has to try and understand the patterns of that and attributes a lot of it to her mum who she loves very much and if I'm right I think Debbie Reynolds died didn't she a few years ago and then Carrie died just a few days later it's almost like Carrie's heart was broken losing her mum but that dynamic of mother and daughter is very similar to the dynamic of mother and daughter that's in Absolutely Fabulous that I did not write but that I was part of the very first sketch 
uh, that we did. And really, that was the, that was the basic tenet of that sketch was that a daughter has to mother the mother, you know, um, and, and the daughter might be the more straight laced one initially. Um, and that's where we started from with Ab Fab. So that's interesting. That's only just occurred to me. But yes, I love that book. I mean, my book is is not about that kind of mother-daughter relationship, but you're right. It is about the kind of the power and the magnitude of, of um, mother love, um, which is something that I'm very interested in. And that, you know, I'm, I am a mother and I'm a mother to two uh, uh, fully cooked new human beings uh, that I inherited when I remarried. Um, and so I'm now, I've now have a son, which I never thought I would have. And I've got a, an, a, another daughter. And I've also been a daughter and I've been mothered magnificently by my mother. And, you know, it's only now in my 60s that I realise how well she did that job under all kinds of difficult circumstances, you know, right from the beginning, not having lots of dosh and travelling around a lot because my dad was in the RAF and... um you know, going through all kinds of things. And even eventually, because sadly, my dad took his own life when I was about 18. So my mum had to be mum and dad to me and my brother. And, um, you know, at a very difficult age. And I realised as well that when I think back, that I was pretty much allergic to my mother throughout a lot of my teens and into my early 20s, that just her nearness just annoyed me. Everything about her annoyed me. Her politics annoyed me, her opinions, her, her, um, the smell of her, the presence of her annoyed me. She made my skin creep sometimes, but I adored her at the same time. And we went through these very turbulent, difficult, emotional times together. And we rowed and we had these wars um, and we were very, you know, we we're both fairly strong women and we, uh, we, we were loud and we were, uh, robust in our, in our arguments. That's me being kind. Um, but, but this was all in the surety that the, the scaffolding of that very important relationship was always, always in place and that we would return to the peace and the forgiving of that relationship. Always, always. And that gave us the permission to have these differences. And, and I'm of the opinion, you know, that you're supposed to war with your mother. You're supposed to rebel against her because otherwise, when the moment comes to tear away, which we have to do and to fly the nest, it would, you would die of sadness if you hadn't already had some rocky road. And, and if it wasn't a little bit of a relief to remove yourself from your mother's influence but by the same token you still want to be her baby her child you still want to you know crash out on her couch and have her cook you stew and look after you and pat your head and you know be there if you're poorly and all of those things so so in because of you I just wanted to take a deep dive if you like into what mother love is and obviously that story has a um has a, a curious start to mm. motherhood. Which is difficult, isn't it, to talk about because of you, because um, I'm sure lots of our listeners will have read it, but for anyone who hasn't, I know that there are, I, you know, I want them to be as surprised and delighted 
as I was. Um, this is a clumsy half-cooked metaphor, maybe just half, half of a metaphor, really. But what you were saying about mothers and you want to pull away, but you want to know your mum is, is there and it's always going to be there and you can always go and be a child. And I think that's about the books I love. You want that universe to stay in stasis and be able to return to it whenever you need it. Um, yeah. Thinking a lot about, I suppose, Pride and Prejudice as well, you know, Mrs. Bennett being arguably one of the worst mothers in a book of all time. But her, <laughs> in a way, she's doing her job because all of her girls, out of sheer sad economic necessity, they've all got to kind of, you know, flee the nest and marry. And she is, you know, doing her best to make sure they really want to leave home. Yes. Uh, you know, I remember whenever I read Jane Austen, um, which I loved so much, uh, but I've never reread, actually. Um, but I, whenever I did, I thought, oh, well, it must have been the way it was then. Uh, mothers must have, for instance, in that book, mothers must have behaved like that to marry their daughters off. They must have had to um, be rather cruel to their daughters on occasion in order to do that. And then you have the realisation, yes, that was the, uh, that, that, that was, those were the manners of the day. However, look at this character. It's not just whatever happened it wasn't just the norm the social norm it was also brilliant writing of a particular kind of overbearing person beautifully balanced with Mr Bennett you know and what genius writing and I think you have to be you have to get a bit older to realize that to realize that this you've been sort of um, you've been mugged in a, in, a, in a literary way into thinking one kind of thing when in fact of course what's happening is human beings are being written about in all their glorious extremities and Jane Austen loved um, uh, an extreme character and, and, and that's where the humour is. I mean, I still think the funniest thing in any book is the best way to, to make a character funny is to make them pompous. And she's so good at skewering pomposity. But then, you know, seeing it later in things like Diary of a Nobody and even Adrian Mole, that's why we love those characters so much. You know, they take themselves so seriously, so we don't have to. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, pomposity and self-interest are great traits for any humorous character. I've, I've tried to write a character in this book who's, I've, I, you know, although this book, it, the main event of this book are uh, women, uh, without a doubt, um, the men are very important to me. And anyone who knows me knows that I love a good dad uh, because I had a great dad. Um, so I have written a good dad in this book and I've also written a not so good dad. And the not so good dad, who's a bit of a narcissist, well, not a bit, a lot of a narcissist, <laughs> and somebody with such, such giant self-interest where there's no room for anyone to love him more than he loves himself. Um, that was a delight to me to write somebody again who is a snob, pompous, self-interested, flawed people are where great humour can it, it's a very fertile area very fertile now it's um at the time of recording it's um i'm not going to say the c word this early on but it is december in general which yes. what are the books that you love to give as gifts are there any particular books that you've given to more than one person and really sort of pressed into their hands well you know it's, it's it depends on the people doesn't it I, i've got a stepdaughter who's quite a feminist so you know i've given uh i've got I mean, she won't see this. I don't, I hope she won't hear this. I don't, I don't know. She might, I don't want to ruin the surprise, but I've given, uh, Dr. Jessica Stevenson's written a great book, um, uh, about how women are forever looking for approval and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I want to, I want to give her that. I, I've always given her Caitlin Moran's books. 
But then my, my own daughter is a photographer. So I would give her books, you know, about Martin Parr or, or, or anybody, you know, Diane Arbus or, or, or Eve Arnold or someone like that. Um, so it depends really. I'm married to a man who does not read novels. Oh. And, um, but does read books about trees. Um, and books about wood and, um, you know, how to make axes and stuff like that. And it's an extraordinary thing actually being, uh, I've never really in my life been partnered with anybody that didn't read fiction, but he doesn't really. He just doesn't. And as a lot of guys don't, as I discover, it was only when I came into the publishing world that I realized how many, you know, literary and popular fiction is, you know, supported by women to a huge degree, huge degree. Men apparently are very loyal to the, to the authors that they like. They will always buy whatever somebody, you know, Ian Rankin or, you know, Forsyth or Bernard Cornwall or, you know, whoever it is. Um, but women will try, you know, lots of things. Um, but yeah, my husband doesn't read fiction at all. And I made the mistake when I first met him, whatever it was, 10 years ago now, that, um, I had just finished a draft of a novel that I was writing and I thought this was a, such a huge present for me and such a huge risk to let him have a look at the first draft. And uh, I gave it to him and I said, I'd love you. I'd love your opinion on this, you know, because I thought, yeah, he, he'd be, you know, I love him and I would like to know what he thinks. So off he went with it. And I was waiting in my office and just, you know, rather nervous about what he might think of it. And then I heard him sort of singing so I thought, oh, he seems distracted. That's not a good sign. And then I went into the uh, kitchen where he was and he'd literally read about two pages and was off whittling a spoon. <laughs> I thought, uh, okay. Actually whittling a spoon. <laughs> Actually whittling a spoon, which is what he'd rather be doing. And it wasn't that he didn't want to read it. It's just that he, his brain is not, uh, the muscle that is his brain is not used to fiction. So he has to do it in little, very tiny little chunks. So giving him a draft to read will take ages. So I haven't <laughs> done that since. I just don't do that. But um, yes, yeah, so I would give people gifts that are suitable for them. And that's one of my greatest joys. And thank God we can get back into bookshops now as of, you know, this week. Um is to go into a bookshop with people in my mind and think, right, what what is here? What delights are here that they would like? Shall I risk this new fiction or shall I buy this beautiful coffee table thing or shall I buy something funny or whatever? So I like I like doing that as gifts. I was wondering whether you are a reader who really wants to to gulp it down I don't know about you but if I love something it's all I want to read and I'm quite quite greedy and quite I really want to be in the book so and I know there are readers like your husband who you know will sort of read two pages that well that's my reading done for the day and once I'm in a world I want to be in it do you know I think that I have uh, mishandled my reading life I would say in the last easily the last 20 years and just not read enough. Simple as that. I have piles and piles and piles of books. There's a Japanese word for this. I remember finding out there is a Japanese word for books that are... Oh, I should have known it. And maybe you could find it out. Um, for books that are there calling you, that you want to read. 
Um, and that's my life. My life is full of um, working very hard, looking after three kids, uh, doing various things that I have to do, and regarding reading as 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 a pampering, as an indulgence that I rarely get to. And what I absolutely know, as well as as, I, as I've grown older, my concentration is is less. So I need to be on holiday officially, which I hardly ever do, um, or nobody around me over a whole weekend, which hardly ever happens. Oh, that's it. The name for it is Sundoku, spelt T-S-U-N-D-O-K-U. And that is acquiring reading materials, but letting them pile up in one's home without reading them. That's exactly what my life is like. Oh, thank you. There's I a Japanese word, word for it. Oh, that. <laughs> oh, I'm so relieved. No, it's not just me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, I envy you because it sounds like you are still swimming in the lovely sea of literature regularly. And I am rarely. And yet it's my greatest desire. So uh, I don't, I'm not denying myself the chance to do it. I just don't have the chance much. Um, and then I think, well, I've got my life upside down. This is the wrong way round. And I suppose part of me is thinking, oh, you know, and this may be crazy thinking, but I'm thinking, right, I need to stop everything, really literally say I've retired now and spend the rest of my life reading all the books that I am longing to read. And I do have this strange thing in my life, which I'm absolutely sure you have, um, which is that I am sent books by people and unbidden uh, to ask for me to quote on them or whatever. Um, and so I feel a kind of great um, responsibility to read those, especially if they're by people I know. Uh, and they pile up, but I didn't ask for those. And yet there's my Sundoku pile that I, you know, really want to read. And so I have the great dilemma all the time uh, of what I should be reading, what I'd like to read, um, and not having enough time to read at all. It's so hard, isn't it? I think it reminds me a little bit of, you know, books you're made to read at school, which I, I think that's a very good thing, but the way that books sort of come into your life. And, and I'm sure as an author and a reader, when you get sent a book that you didn't ask for, there is a bit of you that's thinking, oh, I know this represents, you know, years of a person's life and everything, but also at the same time, I'm never going to, I don't know, finish... I think, you know, I've barely read any Dickens. And <laughs> here I That's am, right. like 90 exactly hot books right. of 2021. But, but you can have wonderful surprises with it. I was recently sent Ruth Jones's book, uh, her latest book, which is called Us Three. And I know Ruth very well, and she is a great writer for telly. Um, um, but I didn't know her writing very well. And I thought, oh, I ought to read this because Ruth sent it to me and she, I know she wants a quote and blah, blah. Uh, and, and I slightly begrudged it for a minute. And then within a page, I didn't begrudge it at all. And I thought, do you know, I wouldn't know about this unless this was sent to me. And thank God. And I spent two days in her company and was delighted to be able to give her a quote. And so sometimes there's a happy accident like that. Oh, that's really lovely. In your writing, does it feel different writing for for the screen versus writing to the page? Do you feel as though one is more instinctive than the other or are they just sort of separate but equal? Uh, Yes, that exactly, I think, separate but equal. And I do believe that the writing I've done before I came to sit down and write um, fiction, certainly, um, has informed the way that my brain works. So I like to visualise everything. And lots of people tell me that when they read my books, 
they can see the scenes and that, that that delights me that that that's great it may mean that i'm not very literary or something that i'm quite visual or quite kind of kinesthetic or something but i i don't mind that my my journey through learning to own my own uh, writing voice if you like has been quite um edifying really for me because and and i've learned i've learned a lot because i wrote my very first book which was an autobiography in revenge really or in anger because somebody had written a book about me an unauthorized biography and it was very badly written and it was a very odd experience because i felt as if i was bullied so imagine somebody takes your life and rather carelessly writes a their opinion of you which is anyone's entitled to but b cobbles together a kind of version of your life and your family without ever really talking to you or your family at all and i'm and i suppose lots of biographies are written in this way certainly of dead people but you know you do a bit of research i'm yeah. so sorry that happened dawn i i cannot imagine anything more invasive and it's completely awful to have this happen to you and there are many many little inaccuracies in this book little factual inaccuracies but of course that adds up to a giant inaccurate uh book and i'm kind of used to people writing inaccurate things about me that happens all the time in the press so i'm used to kind of going oh okay i just have to live with that or okay i'll fight this one but but with this some of these inaccuracies were about my family, you know, and I'm very ferociously protective of my family and my mother in, in particular, who was alive then. And this woman wrote that my parents had split up when they were younger and blah, blah, blah. And this had never happened. My mother was outraged and just and my dad wasn't alive anymore. This was such an insult. So, you know, there was me. I had to go and get a high court injunction against this person who was also fertling about in my adopted daughter's life trying to find out who her birth mother was and you know calamitous things uh that in for the sake of a biography and then what what would happen is because that was the only book about me that was for sale i would go and do my gigs with jennifer and people would bring this book to me to sign because of course they didn't know that it's written by someone who doesn't know me and that it's full of dreadful uh untruths and that it's hurtful and damaging and harmful. Um, so I used to take the book off them and give them 20 quid. And I would spend all my money from doing the gig on on trying to replace and explain to people. And I thought, okay, I can't keep doing this. So I wrote my own autobiography. And it was at that moment when I sat down again, slightly begrudging it, thinking, oh, treating it a bit like homework. You know that Sunday night feeling when you've got to hand your homework in on a Monday morning, dreadful, huge black cloud above you. I sat down like that thinking, oh, I've got to write my own autobiography now because of this. Um, and then I started, once I decided I would write it in the form of letters to everyone I know and love and those that I have fancied and um, those who've been my crushes and those who have actually been in my life and to my dead dad and so on. And once I decided that was my route through, Oh, I loved it. I loved the time on my own. Everything I thought I wouldn't love because I've worked in such a collaborative way in my life, in groups and in partnerships. And um, I, I thought, oh, I took, listen, look at me. I'm, I'm in a room on my own. I'm in my own head. I can control every sentence. I can choose every word. 
I know the story I want to tell. And that was where I suddenly realised, oh, I think I'm at home here. This, this, I'm happy doing this. It, it pleases me and it was very fulfilling. And so when that autobiography was done, when Penguin came to me and asked me if I'd like to write fiction, I was there immediately. I was afraid, but I was there. Oh, it makes me so happy that something so joyous can come out of something that was initially so shit. <laughs> yes, exactly that, exactly that. And I wouldn't wish to go through it again. Um, but it was, uh, it was, um, it was just in the end. You know, it was right. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We'll be back to Dawn soon, but now it's time for my steal of the week. I was racking my brains to something that's kind of cosy and Christmassy and wintry, so I have chosen Diablo Cody's memoir, Candy Girl, A Year in the Life of an Unlikely Stripper. This is how it starts. Nobody comes to Minnesota to take their clothes off, at least as far as I know. Here in the woebegone upper country, Jack Frost is a liberal rangy sadist with ice crystals in his soul patch. This is the author's bitingly funny account of what it was like to enter the sex industry and work in the strip clubs and peep shows of Minnesota. It was published in 2007, and I think that certainly in places it probably needs to be read as a period piece, but it's fast, funny, and so much fun. Candy Girl is published by Gotham Books. Now, back to Dawn. This is a, it's not a question, it's one of those bad, like the Q&A at the end of the event. It's, like, it's more of a statement, actually. This um, <laughs> I did, um, great because I've always, always, you know, written and wanted to write and sort of, you know, scribbled different things down. And um, reading French and Saunders sketches was a huge part of it. I did that sort of as, they were the books that I was pulling off the shelf and loving. And it was really, you know, reading your words and those that, that taught me how to write. And I think that the sort of, 
to be a really I mean I, I I don't know that I am but I think you know you absolutely are to be a propulsive writer to write write what people want to read and to have that sense of you know the language being really powerful and to use it wisely and well and sort of have economy I'm I'm not wild about books that are presented as being very 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 literary I was going to say it's probably what um what your husband loves because like you know five pages on a tree not for me but clearly there is an audience for that (laughs) (laughs) there is and there are people I mean I did write my was it my second novel was called um oh dear Sylvia and the Sylvia was a V-I-A, and so it was a reference to a tree because I was writing about a woodsman in there. So actually, I was reading books about trees at that point because I didn't know much about trees. Um, and I read a lot of Robert McFarlane. So, you know, here's somebody interested in nature, but writes about nature as if it's living human breathing um so you know that was that that was the good crossover for me to to find somebody who could write about cathedrals of trees and I I went and slept out overnight in a wood uh at his behest because he said in one of his books um you know you everyone should do this once in their life to listen to uh what what a forest is like and to feel it and it was uncomfortable and it was cold (laughs) but but I was able to write bits of this book because I did that and he drew my attention to the moss, to the very small things, the details of the moss on the trees and the way the roots are and things like that. So so there are writers who write in not such a practical way, not, not that that would be my husband's way through it at all. I know you've talked about not having as much time to read as you'd wish, but are there any books that you've read more than once or books that you'd reread for comfort? I don't think I've ever... Um... I don't think I've ever reread a book properly from uh, cover to cover, but there is a book I return to to dip in and out of, and that is Stoner by John Williams. And now I came late to this. I believe that this book, you know, lot people who knew knew about it, and then it was re-released, wasn't it, a few years back? And then that's where I came to it. Well, maybe it was about fifteen years ago. I don't know. Um, somebody gave it to me anyway. Someone I love, and I thought, okay, I'll have a look at this. And oh my goodness, this was just, you know, I could, I just ate it up. Here was um, beautiful, concise, clever writing about a very ordinary man. And that was the whole thing. Here's a man, um, William Stoner, who everybody has just uh, overlooks, (laughs) basically. He doesn't matter, not even to his own wife. Nobody notices him. Nobody's, he works in a university, you know, he's an academic. Nobody cares about him. No one can remember him very well. Even his leaving party is poultry. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But his inner life, the inner life of this man was huge. So his interior was massive. And the detail uh, of um, John Williams's writing is just beautiful absolutely beautiful and that chimed with me because I know that I can't write you know intricate crime drama I I can't do that I'm no good at that kind of story I'm interested in relationships between people and the massive seismic changes that can happen when something small happens or when someone forgives someone or when 
you meet a new person that ignites something uh, in your interest, you know, when you chime with somebody else, when deep calls to deep in another person's character. And that's what that book is about. And I and I love it. You've made me want to read it for shame. I've not read it yeah, but well, that... you've got a treat. You've got a treat oh, in store. Can't... And there's no shame. That's the thing. There's no shame in not having read a book. There's only another adventure to have. There's only an excitement. It's so true. Dawn, what I would love to do for Christmas is I'd love to give you a week. A week where you can stop the clock. It's like Bernard's watch. You can just read yes. and read and read. And no one needs you for anything for a week. That time is oh. yours. What do you read? Oh, my goodness. I've got so many things stacked up that I want to read. I mean, at the moment, I have a Peter Perfides book called Broken Greek sitting on my desk. I want to read that. I want to read um, Jessica Mitford's letters. Um, oh, God, there's, oh well, everything, everything. And like you said, Dickens, I want to return to Dickens, which I don't think I've ever really properly read. Uh, my dad read some Dickens to me when I was young. He read Bleak House to me. Um, and of course, you know, I've seen lots of films of Dickens, but I don't think I've I've read. I've never read A Christmas Carol. You know, that's what we need to be reading at Christmas, isn't it? Mm. And I think I have read A Christmas Carol because it's very short. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Tick. I definitely will to read that. I, d- I really, really loved the, the adaptation of David Copperfield. Um, that was, was that the start of this year? Uh, yes. Well, funny you should say that because I was in, I thought that's what you were going to say. Many years ago, I was in an adaptation for telly of David Copperfield and uh, Maggie Smith was in it and the very young Daniel Harry Potter was oh, in really? it. Oh, Really? Daniel Radcliffe, yeah, he played the little chap in it. Um, and I was just a, a boozy, you know, landlady, the favourite kinds. And that's the way I've got into Dickens, you know, via Miriam Margulies, doing shows about Dickens and all the women from Dickens. When you think, oh, how hilarious. You know, you think it's all about, like, you know, Miss Havisham and, and Estella. And I think yeah. they're sort of, like, yeah. really weird, you know, it's the sort of not strong women in the, the way that that's, you know, come to be sort of overused and I think a bit abused, is it? But strong women in that striking, mad, stay in your head forever, sort of subtle, yes. weird, and then all out weird. Yes. Well, that again is is clever writing when someone like Stella is some someone where you think, well, that wouldn't happen. Well, I don't know anyone like that. That's crazy. That's surreal and odd. That's an uh, that's an eccentric, isn't it? And then you, you creep towards the metaphor of what it all stands for, or the meaning or the you're taken in and you feel, you know, you, you have a visceral connection with someone and you don't know what it is. Is it sadness? Is it memory? Is it, it's very haunting, you know, and so you allow yourself to be eaten up by the literature. And that is a treat because it's not easy. You have to, you know, you conjoin with the writer and you agree. That's the contract, isn't it? You agree that you will lend your imagination and you will allow yourself to imagine who this person is. And then the writer's job is to fulfil that, you know. And I think also it's a writer's job to solve problems, if you like, as well for you, but not to allow you to creep towards it somehow. I mean, at the centre of my book, of Because of You, I, I set out with a challenge to write a character who has done something so unforgivable because uh, it's not a spoiler, but she steals a baby. And 
you know, that was my worst fear, that my thought that somebody could steal a baby, that's not okay. And, and there's nothing forgivable about that. But then I thought, well, that's, that's why I'm going to choose that crime, because I then have to find a way to forgive this woman. So I have to write a character you can forgive, and I have to write another woman who perhaps can forgive her and why she can. So, you know, I think having a challenge like that, and I think Dickens definitely has that all the way through, the challenge of making you love this person. How can you love, oh, what were they called, the people that took Oliver in the... the... Undertakers? <laughs> no, that's not right. <laughs> what What were they, Mr and Mrs something? You know, who you just think, oh, do we know? Not, not sure you're not kind to Oliver. We don't think we love you. Um, but then you, you know, you worm your way into it and you're you're involved and now you love Oliver even more. You know, it's very clever, very clever. I've got a lot to learn. <laughs> But all of my favourite writing, and I think that's so, you know, in evidence in, in your novels, especially in Because of It, it's the emotional truth. And you've got, and you know, you know the writer hasn't done the, the wicked thing or the mad thing or the terrifying thing, but they've really, really, really understood how it would feel and they know exactly how they would feel. Well, that is the joy of writing is that you explore these uh, difficult things that are not in your... This is, it's fiction, after all. So, you know, you are, you are imagining what it would be like to have your baby stolen. What, what on earth would it be like? What would that moment be like when that woman comes out of the bathroom goes to the cot uh, in a hospital room and sees just a blanket and no baby. And, you know, and I try, I have to take myself to that place. And I, I suppose the actor in me can do that a bit. The improviser in me can do that a little bit. But it's actually just the human, really, isn't it? You know, and I have to place myself, Dawn, in that character for a moment and then I have to do sort of somehow wend my way to Anna's head rather than Dawn's head uh, to find out what you know how would she cope with that moment but what does it feel like to have a shock and you know what do you feel in your throat and what happens to your breathing and what happens to the air in the room at the moment that you realise something so terrible has happened to you. And I know you mentioned Ruth Jones' fabulous book, but I'd love to hear about any other books that have made you laugh. Do you laugh out loud ever when you read? Uh, yes, I do. I definitely do. I uh, The book that made me laugh the most uh, was when I was younger. I got, what was I, in my late 20s, I think early 30s, when I came across Pacoon by Spike Milligan. And it's a beautiful book about the partition of Ireland and how crazy it is when this one village uh, spans the border. So certain things are allowed on the north of the village that are not allowed in the south of the village. And it's absurd and silly. But Spike Milligan peoples this village with um, very funny characters. And he also did something that I didn't even think was possible to do. Um, and I know other writers have done this before, but I'm not well enough read to know about it. But he removes a character from the book, outside the book, to talk to you, the reader. And he talk, the character talks to the writer and admonishes him for not writing him well enough and for not including him in certain parts of it or not being clever enough. So there's a relationship between the writer and this funny little character that escapes from the pages um, which you the reader witness and you think oh okay you can do that can you you can take somebody outside the pages who 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 
uh, acknowledges that they're being written. Uh, you know, that is extraordinary. Um, but the, all the voices um, that, that Spike Milligan clearly, and again, here's a sketch writer, you know, here's a comedy writer. Um, and, and, and because his voice was so clear in my head, he was somebody I laughed a lot with my family at when he was part of the goons and so on. Um, that when I, when I read that book aloud, and then I had a boyfriend at the time who also, who was Irish, so that helped. Um, he read it aloud to me. We went, we went on a holiday on a boat and we had a tilly lamp and he, we would read Pacoon in the evenings. And so I, I remember laughing very much to that. I love that, that because it's such a, a shared and sort of disinhibiting thing, isn't it? When something, and I think Spike Milligan is just one of those writers where I've laughed so hard and got to a point where I've always forgotten why I was laughing in the first place. It's entirely, it, he's always strikes me being so much funnier than the sum of his parts, which I mean is a compliment. Absolutely, absolutely. And, it, you know, it's very poignant when you think of the, the battles he had with depression and so on, but so many people who live on the edge um, of their of their mood like that can dip into um, funniness in such a wonderful way. And his poetry, especially, you know, for children, if you've got young people coming round to your house, Spike Milligan poetry is hilarious and irreverent and, you know, includes farts and <laughs> is delightful. <laughs> Always up for a fart joke. And I think it's so important because yeah. I don't read nearly as much poetry as I'd like to. And I always sort of think of it as being something quite serious and, you know, forgotten you know, that it has a function. It's supposed to be for everyone to read and, you know, like singing songs together. Yeah. Well, sometimes in poetry, I can find um, a couple of sentences that see me through a year or, or further, you know, that can become a little mantra. Um, and sometimes you can forget the whole poem, but only remember little bits. And it helps to have chunky little moments. I, I mean, I keep a diary and at the front of my diary, if I come across poetry that I like and it's it's and I will do it if I see something in a book, a great sentence in a book, I will also do it. But when I go back and reread it, the poetry, of course, has been delivered to you, especially in these in these chunks you know, the words are so sparing and carefully chosen uh, that they're the ones that I return to. For instance, there's um, there's an American poet called Jane Hirschfield and she wrote a very small, I think it's three lines, the poem. And I remember reading it and thinking, mm, okay, that's interesting. Let me read it again. Um, and it goes like this. I'm going to have to try and remember it off the top of my head. It goes something like this. I might get a word or two wrong. I moved my chair into sun. I sat in the sun. The way hunger is moved when called fasting. So that's the poem. I moved my chair into sun, which I take to mean, you know, I moved my mind into a brighter place. I sat in the sun. I stayed there. Uh, I made sure I stayed there. The way hunger is moved when called fasting. In other words, we can decide how we regard anything. We can be in control of stuff in our lives rather than letting it control us. That's all, that's all it is. It's change your mind and stay there. Move yourself to a place. Now, in a year when I was um, going on tour and I had a terrible kind of vertigo, uh, that afflicted me throughout this tour and unfortunately it was 
um, triggered by the lights on the stage. So there's no way I could do the show and not have this problem. So I had months of touring with this terrible thing going on, which made me feel like I was drunk, but without the joy of the alcohol. Um, and it disabled me in a very curious way. And it made me very sad. And it, it made me feel weak and vulnerable and all things that I, I don't ordinarily feel. This little mantra... I, I repeated to myself, I keep, you know, constantly, I would do it before I went on stage, I would do it when I was feeling low, and I'd think, yeah, I can change this, okay, this is a thing that's happening to me, but it's not me, it's not what defines me, this is just something that I'm poorly with at the moment, and I will get through this, and I need to move my head from this dark place over there to the sun, and I need to sit there instead, and it genuinely changed me, and that's words, from somebody else's heart, changed my heart and enabled me to cope with a difficult situation. And that's the power of poetry. Isn't that magical? And I think that's so true and so wise. And it's an idea that I'm sort of new to this year. And there are writers that I'm loving a lot when and I was young and cynical and silly, I would be very quick to dismiss them and finding a lot in um, Elizabeth Gilbert and Brene Brown, especially, and that really... Brene Brown! Oh, what a treat. She's a gift to us all. Elizabeth Gilbert, did you say? I don't know that person. I'm writing it down. So she okay. famously wrote Eat, Pray, Love, which I haven't read, but she oh, yes. wrote... Oh, yes. I have not read that. Big Magic is her book about writing, and it was so liberating and my favorite Elizabeth Gilbert thing is her idea and I think she actually talks about Brene Brown and says as a writer you can be a martyr or a trickster and martyrs always have that Sunday night homework feeling that I know so well and make a real meal of it and I've done that for sure but like, oh I'm doing my very serious thing no one talked to me what was that I said don't talk to me and that sort of <laughs> whereas a trickster is like this is hard and I hate it, so I'm going to creep up on it and sneak up on it and find a way of doing it that doesn't feel like doing it. Yeah, it's a trick, but everything is, you know, a sort of fake it to make it thing. I've definitely done that in my life. I've thought, what would it be like to be a very experienced, successful, appreciated author? Let's start writing and see what that feels like. <laughs> and I know I wasn't that and I'm not that particularly, but I, I tried to see what that would. Well, maybe I am creeping towards that now, but, you know, I, I tried to see what that would feel like. And I think I've done that a lot in my life. I remember going to live in America after I left school and I won a scholarship with the English speaking union to uh, go and live in America. And I, and I was very lucky to be um seconded to uh, uh, New York. So, uh, you know, I arrived in New York age 18. I mean, you know, mad, really. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I thought it was the set of Kojak. <laughs> you know, and I thought it was a dangerous and scary place. But of course, I fell in love with it. But when I was on the plane going to New York, I thought, well, God, nobody knows me here. Nobody knows that I'm Dawn who does that and that and that and has this fear and uh, is a bit bossy about that or whatever. I thought, they don't know me, so I'm just going to pretend to be this like really collected um, person who's, who's a very in control and massively confident. Um, and so I got off the plane as that, you know, and it was a bit of acting, really, faking it, um, because I wanted these people to receive me like the person I'd rather be. Uh, than being as anxious as I was when I got on the plane. Um, and weirdly, 
when people start to respond to you in that way, you think, yeah, I quite like this. And actually, I can do it. Not entirely. And you need to stop the faking and and, and somehow climb into your real clothes, uh, which you can really wear that really fit you, but that have the new confidence in. It's okay to do that. It was, yeah, that's remarkable. It's like discovering you've got a superpower, isn't it? When you That moment when you realise the world will take you at your own estimation, that people aren't sort of squinting at you, trying to mark you down. No, that's right, yeah. Or, or, or also realising that people are not all your enemies and they're not trying to find fault. I've even had that experience with Jennifer where we went on tour and I remember the very first time we went on tour and we were about to go on stage in Glasgow, you know, which any comedian will tell you, you know, <laughs> that's a <laughs> baptism of fire there. Um, uh, but I remember thinking, oh, we're going to die, we're going to die, there's an audience and oh, they're going to hate us and what if they heckle us and what will we do? Do we run? Do we, what do we do? And it was the minute I put my foot on the stage and we walked out, I thought, Okay, of course, these people want to like us. They've paid money to come and see us. They're hoping that we might entertain them. So they're not our enemies. And this is not a battle. This, this We're all in this together, you know, and, and they're hoping for the, a great evening. And so are we. So it's okay. That's so true. Every, there are so many things that I always forget. We're all on the same team. It's not your driving test. I failed three driving tests and I still can't do it. <laughs> Um, I was wondering whether when you met Jennifer and that sort of early bonding, whether there were any yeah. books that you talked about that you both sort of shared or discovered mm. that you had a, a mutual love of. We we are very different, Jennifer and I. We're kind of chalk and cheese. Um, I say that and then we do, we have weird moments of synchronicity that are quite, quite... Uh, uh, astonishing really we sometimes will turn up in the same shoes or the same car that we might have bought you know and it's exactly the same and so we do have there, there are moments where we're very you know similar but mostly we're quite different and um she is not a fiction reader at all really uh, or she might occasionally but not much what she loves is autobiography and and she loves uh people she loves reading about uh, actual people um, whereas that wasn't my bag at all occasionally it would be and then we would swap that you know she loves um, for instance the letters of was it Mary Wordsworth the sister um, you know she loves that kind of thing real life letters diaries biographies um, but then of course those things led to us trying to write characters that might be writing letters like that you know so it, her her references were more useful than mine really but we didn't have much in common there wasn't I don't think there was much that we read together that we we didn't read we, we were at college and we were busy doing you know we did we, we didn't read much at all to my shame no shame <laughs> no shame and I suppose that's it's, that it's really interesting, isn't it? That sometimes, you know, your perfect sort of writing partner and working partner is someone who's got a very different perspective and a very different set of references. Because also when you are wanting to make sure that the thing you're referring to is sort of specific, but also universal. And if you're both really immersed in the same world, no one's going to step out and say, oh, but if you've, if you've got no entry point this makes no sense yeah that's true and i'll tell you something that was that was hilarious and i realized was so helpful is that uh when jennifer and i sat down to write sketches you know sometimes we'd set them in i don't know elizabethan times or we'd be cave women or whatever you know they'd be all over history if you like um 
we realised that we really didn't know any history. Uh, or if we did, we had it all completely confused. We, we had all the wrong kings and queens. And we, <laughs> we just failed. We just failed history, basically. Um, and we, so we would end up calling things the olden days. <laughs> and that was anything from yesterday backwards. So when we wanted to write specific characters that were set in a specific time, do you know what we used as our reference? Ladybird books. <laughs> the Ladybird Guide to the Tudors or the Ladybird Guide to, I, I don't know, prehistoric Britain or whatever. That was it. You know, you've got, you've got 20 pages with, with illustrations <laughs> that tell you the kind of buildings and what people were doing and who the king was and so on. That was it. Those were our references. They were brilliant. This was all before the internet, obviously. That's fantastic. Cause I mean, the, the number of things I read that are sort of very dense and historical and you do think, oh, this, 20 pages on rough manufacturer does not serve the story <laughs> but you've gone away and you spent six months of your life researching this and you can't bear to leave it out so I think maybe Ladybird books are the answer nothing is um, extraneous no that's right that's right and what a delight they are as well you know you, you realize that the child in you uh, is still could still learn this whereas the adult in you is so ashamed there's that word again of what you don't know and it's you mustn't reveal yourself to not know and I think that's part of my resistance to writing anything historical at all I just think oh giant research and some people would love Hilary Mantel loves that obviously you love it you know it's a it's something that some people relish I like research I like something to be authentic so that you then can break the rules if you need to and for for this particular book actually I had to research quite a lot including going to well first of all going to see a heart specialist who I sat down with and said I need a disease that serves this purpose and I told him my story and how I needed it to fit in I needed it to be hereditary and I needed it to show up when you were young and I needed it to to um exacerbate the situation when you're pregnant you know all of this and I, I saw him sitting there going, okay, okay, oh, it's not atrial fibrillation then. It's not that. It might be this, it might be that. Mm, I think I know what it is. So he he called in another surgeon. You know, this is a man who's busy saving people's lives all day. And he's in his, uh, you know, in his special gear, greens. And he sat down with me and um, we had about half an hour on this particular disease. And he was getting very juiced up and interested in it. Called in another surgeon. He said, well, what, listen, what she's looking for is something like this. Would it be that? Would it be this? Would it be that? And they were going through it, their little, you know, index of all the diseases that might suit. Um, and anyway, he eventually gave me one and he sent me lots of information about it. And I went and researched it a little bit more. And I thought, yes, this is my disease. Great. Perfect. This is perfect for my for my purposes. Went off and wrote it into my book. And bear in mind, I write um, longhand with a pencil on lined paper. So once it's confined to the page, it's pretty, you know, I don't like to have to change it too much. I'm happy to do that in a, in a big uh, second draft. But anyway, I laced it into my story. And then he sent me a different disease. He just thought of a better one. Oh. Um, he, he was obviously still thinking about it. And he came up with one. He said, oh, Dawn, sorry about this, but I've just, you know, I've been giving it some thought. 
this would be better. This would serve your purposes better. What about this? And I thought, <laughs> now I've got to make sure it's that disease instead of this one. So that's the kind of research I like. But I, you know, I like real human beings that can talk to you mm. rather than wading through great big tomes of, you know, reference. Um, the same was true to, I had to find a register, registrar of births, deaths and marriages who would tell me what a moment might be like if a mother of a stillborn comes in to register that and I also had to say to her how would my character get away with not having a birth certificate what how could you break the rules so she really enjoyed thinking about how to commit a crime using <laughs> her, her particular skill set you know it's good fun I, I mean obviously I thank them all in the book but that that's the kind of research I like with real people I, I went down to Trillisk Hospital and talked to the midwives there and they they gave furnished me with all kinds of wonderful stories are there any books with really great food scenes or meal scenes coming up to Christmas this is very much on my mind any dinners you well, would love to have been a part of in a book you know, I was thinking about this and I'm not sure there's a, exactly a scene I can remember. Although, again, you know, when we think about Dickens and seeing sort of cornucopias of bacchanalian things dripping on tables. I, I, or even like you say, you know, with Stella, the things dusty and still there. I was thinking about all of that, not particularly cheerful. But instead of a particular scene, I would say this book, which is The Debt to Pleasure by John Lanchester. This is an amazing book when it comes to food because he has written a hilarious snob called Tarquin Winnot, who is a who is a sort of food critic, uh, but who is, is the most massively pompous man, um, pretentious as all hell. Um, he writes and, and writes his own recipes, um, uh, discusses other people's recipes, goes to restaurants and does, um, uh, you know, critiques and reviews of stuff and is just unbearable as a person. So he has written a book with this delicious character in the middle of it. But everything in this book is about food. So I'm sorry it's not a one little scene, but it's a whole book. And this book is a delight. That's fantastic because that's so much bang for your buck or for my buck. And I've not read that book and I can't wait to read it. That yeah. sounds thrilling. Yeah. Are there any books yes. that um, you've not talked about or that I've not asked you about that you'd like to talk about? Yes, there is a book I do want to mention, um, which is when, when you were talking about um, rereading, which I'm very bad at, but I do dip in. And there is a book that I have dipped into often in my life, and I wanted to mention that. And I have to look at the title because it's a complicated title. It's a John Berger book, and you will know that John Berger wrote Ways of Seeing and all of those books. And they're, and they're little and manageable and relatable and um, connect to your heart, but help you look at things properly. I mean, he's an art critic and, well, he has many things. He's a philosopher, really, as much as anything, but... I would recommend of all of his books, a book called And Our Faces, My Heart, Brief as Photos. And it's a series of small little essays. And they are just utterly, utterly beautiful. And I don't know this life that he has. He lives in France sometimes, or he's he's died now, sadly. But um, he was a friend of my friend, Simon McBurney, who pointed me towards this book. And it 
lives in my house and I give it to people all the time. Uh, it's by my loo, it's by my bed, it's on my office desk and I have several copies of it. And sometimes I just go straight back into it because it's a little injection of utter beauty. Is there a particular essay in the book or a passage that really there is you? There is, and, there's, and I don't have it here with me, but it's about seeing this beautiful flower he he and and because he writes about looking at stuff he's sitting in a kitchen really it's about love it's about his uh girlfriend and and the beauty of her and he's l- sitting in a kitchen and he's looking out and he realizes that w- there's a mirror and he can see the back of a plant of a of a flower is it an iris is it a daily? I can't remember now what it is. And he sees the back of it. And that's what he's looking at. And he thinks that's unusual. And he describes it. And, and then he realises that he's looking at the back of it and how much more beautiful the back of it is than the front. And he makes that a sort of metaphor for his his admiration of his beautiful girlfriend and how the back of her, so to speak, is everything. And never mind, the front is also beautiful and the front's what everybody else sees, but the back is gorgeous. And that that essay, and I wish I could tell you the title of it, I can't remember it, um, is gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. Huge thanks to Dawn. Do tune in to see her as Beatrix Potter on Sky One on Christmas Eve. And if you haven't read it already, I could not recommend her new novel, Because of You, more. It will make you smile and, most importantly, it will make you feel so much closer to the people you love, even if you can't be with them right now. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I have been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at Ybooked and if you've enjoyed this episode, it would really make my day if you could leave us a five-star review. It's the best way to help new listeners to find the podcast. You can find a list of all of the books Dawn talked about at acast.com slash booked. Finally, I leave you with this from Jeanette Winterson. Most kids grow up leaving something out for Santa at Christmas time when he comes down the chimney. I used to make presents for the four horsemen of the apocalypse. See you next time. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.